it's tempting to think that all the time you spend on social media, writing articles, creating podcast episodes, or recording video is time spent building relationships. Heck, I'm doing it right now. Every podcast episode I create is an effort to create a genuine connection between you and me. But I know from experience that my efforts in broadcasting, whether it's here on the podcast, with content marketing, through email, or on social media, pale in comparison to the time I spend interacting with people like you. Speaking of podcasting, you're listening to What Works, the show that challenges conventional wisdom by asking small business owners what's actually working for them. I'm your host, Tara McMullen, and this is the second episode in a special series on trends shaping small business in 2019. Now, the conventional wisdom in today's media-rich world is that you start by creating content, then build your audience, and then market a product to them. Final step, bathe yourself in dollar bills. However, this is a pretty reductive take on what actually works. Businesses aren't built on audiences. They're built with people. And there is a very real difference when it comes to creating for audiences versus nurturing relationships with real people. We talk differently to groups of people. We share different ideas when we're battling for the attention of others. We prioritize different outcomes when we're shouting from our soapboxes. And at the end of the day, all of this social maneuvering isn't nurturing real relationships and its rewards are short-lived. Might take a little more work, but interacting with people one by one and cultivating true connection will serve you, your business, and your customers for the long haul. That's why focusing on real relationships is the second trend I see shaping small business in 2019. Now, I'll share more about how I see this trend taking shape in just a bit. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks powers brands and businesses that bring people together. And when I started my small business, the people I brought together had to jump from platform to platform to interact, learn, and connect. We had one app for online courses, another for events, another for our content, and still another to talk together as a community. None of these apps talked to each other, and most were a disaster on a phone or tablet. And on top of all that, I had to pay for each one separately. Then we found Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks lets us bring our website, content, courses, community, and events together all in one place. Plus, it made it easy to centralize fees and accept payments. Plus, Mighty Networks makes everything we create easy to access on mobile with our own app. Make 2019 the year you streamline the way you do business and build real relationships at the same time. Get started with Mighty Networks free of charge by visiting MightyNetworks.com. Mighty Networks is the easiest way to take your business to the next level. What Works is also brought to you by Gusto. Thinking about some big changes in 2019? Maybe you're ready to put yourself on payroll, streamline the way you pay contractors, or hire your first or next employee. Now's the time to set yourself up for success, and Gusto makes it easy. Whether it's filing and paying taxes, managing time off, offering benefits, or cutting through the red tape, Gusto has your back. 2019 is just around the corner. Don't wait to make your first move. What Works listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash whatworks. 
That's gusto.com slash what works. Now, hopefully you've heard this before, but Paul Graham, a co-founder at the startup accelerator Y Combinator, says, do things that don't scale. Now, unfortunately, the vast amount of small business advice out there says to do exactly the opposite. Only do things at scale. Only produce things that can be used by thousands of people. Find the lowest common denominator and make it your lead magnet. Only spend time on platforms where you can reach huge groups of people all at once. Now look, if doing things that don't scale works for businesses that will eventually be valued in the ballpark of hundreds of millions of dollars or more, then it'll work for you. And it starts by focusing on real relationships one person at a time. Now, the first relationship I would suggest you focus on is the one you have with yourself. Focus on understanding your strengths and your most productive ways of working. Focus on deepening your confidence and self-awareness. Focus on creating work that thrills you. Now, during my interview with Srini Rao earlier this year, he told me, quote, when you satisfy your own desires and you maintain your own values and standards, as opposed to letting it be driven by the desire to live up to the expectations of other people, you're much more likely to create something with emotional resonance, something that's going to have a lasting impact on people. Once you've developed habits and practices that strengthen your relationship with yourself, you have a foundation for nurturing relationships with others. They might be potential customers or existing customers. They might also be colleagues or mentors. They could just be people you think are awesome who you want to get to know better. Now, what's working for me is using the platforms I love the most to connect with individuals instead of just broadcasting. That means that when I hop on Instagram, I'm not just double tapping and posting. I'm commenting. I'm responding to other stories. And I'm letting people know when they post something that really resonates with me. It also means that I don't just use our small business community to broadcast my own ideas. I hop into the comments and share my experience, cheer people on, and ask questions. Now, let me make this crystal clear. I believe 2019 will be the year that small business owners, especially in the digital space, stop caring so much about how many email subscribers they have, how many people like a post on Instagram, or how much organic reach their last Facebook post got. Instead, they'll get clear on the number of real relationships they need to make their businesses work and start making plans to build and nurture those relationships. Now, as a hardcore introvert myself, I know that focusing on real relationships can be easier said than done. That's why I wanted to pull an episode from the archives that could give you real tools for making connections and prioritizing personal interactions. I considered Carlos Saba and the Happy Startup School for the way they're bringing people together in events all over the world. I also thought about Justin Shields, who shared his ritual of meeting one new person every week. I knew we couldn't go wrong sharing a Vanessa Van Edwards interview since, as a recovering awkward person herself, she's made the science of connecting with people her business. Ultimately, I decided on my interview with Jordan Harbinger to illustrate this trend. Now, I interviewed Jordan in the summer of 2017, long before his life and business was rocked by an unexpected breakup with his business partners at The Art of Charm. However, I think this actually makes Jordan's interview even more relevant. Jordan was able to negotiate a deal with his partners and start a new show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which instantly catapulted itself to the top of Apple Podcasts. 
Jordan is now the founder of Advanced Human Dynamics, which helps people experience the transformative power of savvy social dynamics, heightened senses of nonverbal communication, decisive negotiation mastery, and the confidence to excel in any personal or professional social situation. Jordan and I chat about how he nurtures relationships, whether he thinks he needs them or not, how his first business was born from the relationships he nurtured, and how his approach to networking has evolved over the years. Now, let's find out what works for Jordan Harbinger. Jordan Harbinger, welcome to Profit Power Pursuit. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So everyone knows you as the face and the voice of the Art of Charm and the Art of Charm boot camps, but I suspect your role in the company has really kind of changed a lot over the years from when it was just you and AJ doing the podcast to now this whole massive empire that you have. Can you describe how your role uh, has changed or evolved in the company that you've built um, from when you were just starting? the podcast out to where it is now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when we started, it was just, hey, let's let's have the same conversations we're having with our friends or at restaurants or bars or whatever and just record them. And because pe- people were saying, wow, these are so interesting because we we're talking about things like nonverbal communication and persuasion and influence and dating and attraction. I mean, I was 24 and I'm 37. <laughs> so to put that in sort of perspective there time wise. And podcasting didn't exist, or at least I don't think really that it was it was either brand new that year or it didn't exist. Nobody knew about it. Certainly not us. And people were saying things like you should read a book or write a book. You should write a book. And um, my partner, AJ, business partner, AJ, was a cancer biologist. And I was studying for the bar exam, the basically to become a lawyer in New York, which is really hard. I mean, these are hard things to do. AJ's cloning DNA in mice, and I'm studying for one of the hardest tests in America, which, uh, by the way, if you're looking at taking the bar exam, it's not nearly as bad as people say it is. But um, we weren't going to write a book at the same time. I mean, writing a book is a is an actual endeavor, right? And uh, as, as are these two things. So we decided, no, nah, we're not going to do that. But what we could do is instead of having the same conversation five nights a week, because people keep asking the same questions and people are coming in and out of the conversations and stuff like that, because we started having these almost informal seminar type things. Not that people paid, they just met up with us at these places and they were like, all right, tonight I want to ask about this. Well, let's talk about this tonight. And we were busting out all this research and things like that. We decided, oh, you know what? We can just get a CD burner and we can burn some of these conversations to CD by recording them. And then when people ask us, these basic questions, we can be like, go home and listen to this and then come back next week, you know? And so we started doing that and we started giving away these CDs. I had a blazer that I would go out in, you know, it's 2004, cut me some slack. Uh, And uh, I had a blazer that I would go out in and I would just, somebody would ask me a question. I'd have this CD and this little, you know, those paper CD cases type thing, those little wrappers. And I would hand it to them and then they would come back and they'd be like, this was really cool. And eventually my uh, friends were asking us to update that stuff. And AJ went, look, there's this thing called podcasts where essentially you can upload an MP3 sound file to the internet somewhere and people can download it. And I said, that's great. That's perfect. Because then we can just have it up on a website and we can keep adding additions to it. And he's like, yeah, let's just do that. So we went to Guitar Center and we bought some microphones that were on sale. And then we special ordered a USB audio interface, which no one had, had to be ordered out of a catalog. And there was one, there was like one model that you could get. And bear in mind, these are the interfaces that every single person has and that are in many cases built into the microphone you use to record now. But this at that time was a big box 
and it required a separate power supply and it pl- plugged into the back of your computer and then you had to plug microphones into it with cables. And so that's what we started recording on. And we recorded in, we didn't know anything about audio settings and we were recording in AJ's friend's basement. We had to turn off the furnace because it was <laughs> noisy and we were using studio microphones in a non-studio space. I mean, we just didn't know what we were doing. And I remember one time we turned off the furnace and I, I had eventually moved into that same basement because uh, I had moved out of the dorms at law school because it was summertime. And I decided to just stay there. So I stayed there throughout the fall and then the winter. And then one time we did a show, it was Friday night, did a show, went out, came back. And I woke up probably about 4 a.m. It's probably February or something like that. And I was so freaking cold and I could see my breath. And I thought, what's going on? And I realized we turned off the furnace at about four o'clock in the, you know, or four o'clock in the afternoon. We never turned it back on. So I was in a basement in Michigan in oh, February with no heat. And, uh, so that was kind of how we started off. And then we, we kept doing it. We kept doing it. And we took, you know, little breaks. I mean, you know, we release one every three weeks or we release one every other week or something like this. And then, you know, we'd miss for a month and then we'd come back and release three of them. And it was just kind of this hodgepodge. We'll do it whenever we want, do it whenever we can type of thing. And then I just started to enjoy it more and I did it regularly and we started the business because of it. And when I moved to New York to do the law thing, I took with, with me the, the show gear and kept recording and AJ would Skype in from Michigan and stuff like that, you know, to use the standard technology and we would interview people. And after a while we got a chance to go on Sirius XM satellite radio as a guest sort of as guests to talk about the things we were discussing on the show. And so we went on the radio and when we were there, the station manager happened to be air checking, which is just kind of listening in to see how the show's going to go. And I think secretly he was interested in the topic, but he listened to the show and afterwards he goes, Hey, why don't you guys come up to my office? So we went up there and, and he said, um, yeah, this is really, really interesting. You guys are pretty good at this, you know? And I said, yeah, well, we have this podcast and so we're naturally kind of naturally in air quotes, good on the microphone because we've been doing it for almost a year. And he said, yeah, you guys are not the typical guys who've never spoken to a microphone before and talking over each other. And, we, and so we gave him a, a card, you know, uh, one of those cheap free cards where the back is white and the sides are kind of frayed and it's got this cheap print on the front. And I came back in two weeks to do another guest spot on that same show. And he said, look, I listened to a bunch of these podcasts that you guys have, because, uh, of course, these radio guys were on the cutting edge of, of Internet audio, paying attention to the competition. And he said, why don't you guys just bring your show over to satellite? And so we said, sure, why not? As long as we get to keep doing the Internet version, because I don't know, I don't want to hand over control of a project, which turned out to be a good decision. And so we did the show on satellite for three and a half plus years and we did the podcast and uh, we just kept building. And then that was, I think we stopped doing radio probably in 2011, 2012. So since then, I've been doing the show consistently, give or take every week. Uh, now, of course, it's four times a week, but give or take every week since 2006. Absolutely incredible. Can you talk about what your actual kind of day-to-day responsibilities are now as the, the, the face of the Art of Charm? Sure. So I get up in the morning... 
uh, make sure I triage email. So essentially make sure there's nothing super urgent. There very, very rarely is. I have a whole sort of email protocol thing that we go through if you, maybe another time or on this, depending on how interested you are. But I triage email and I know people say, don't look at your email first thing in the morning. That's one of those tips that's really good, I think, for creative people because they get sucked into it and it becomes a time waster. But if you're running a business, you better damn well check your email in the morning. I don't care what the conventional, you know, new new age wisdom is. You have to because if a customer is angry and they're the one who they say, I'm just going to send this to Jordan because I think he's the guy for this because he's the guy here on the radio and he's angry. You don't wait three weeks to check your email because you're you're an entrepreneur. No, you got to take care of that. So you got to forward that to the right people. And, you know, who knows? I mean, there's been invoices stuck in my inbox, all kinds of weird stuff like that. And you can have an assistant do it as well, but it's better if you just do it, uh, in my opinion, depending on how much email we're talking about. And then after that, it depends. Usually I've got some studying that I like to do in the morning. So I study Chinese to keep my brain sharp, you know, neuroplasticity and all that stuff. And I also study other interviewers. So I'll listen to clips from Howard Stern, who I think has, it's not my favorite show, but he's got some definite wins when it comes to thinking on his feet and creating a show structure. And then I'll watch Charlie Rose or I'll watch YouTube, Craig Ferguson or Colbert, something like that to get the juices flowing and make sure that I'm channeling the right stuff. And I often will listen to other podcasts and things like that. And then I usually start reading and getting into show prep. So I will research the heck out of each guest. So I'll read the book that they've written, which in itself is an unusual way to prepare for a podcast because most podcast hosts are like, all right, I'm going to maybe Google this person or make them fill out this document or whatever. I will read the whole book. I will read the Wikipedia article. I'll read the top front page of news articles for that person. I'll see if we have any friends in common on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if we do, I'll ask those people for inside stories or information about that person. Um, I do a lot of stuff like that. And if they have a, a popular book, I'll usually read the negative Amazon reviews of the book as well so that I can see other people who read their work and started to think critically. Because a lot of times you'll see a, a writer writing a book and the number one critical review is another neuroscientist who disagrees with this person's research or something like that. And that's more useful than the positive reviews, which are like, this, this was great and super funny. So I'll read all of those. I take notes and throw those in a Google Doc and create the show. And then I'll record a show or two um, most days or many days. And then, yeah, I make sure to exercise and do things like that. So uh, after that, between those things, I've got smaller responsibilities like social media, make sure that everybody's engaged on Twitter, make sure our Facebook stuff is, is working. But I, I delegate a lot of that, but I do the engagement part myself. I don't, I don't have anybody writing as me. Who's not actually me. I don't like that. I have, I do the Twitter and I do the, the Facebook engagement, but I won't necessarily schedule all the posts and things like that. And I, I don't think that's something people should outsource because I think it's a little disingenuous to say, yeah, tweet at me. And then some person in the Philippines is pretending to be you. It's just kind of dumb. Yeah, I completely uh, agree. <laughs> and uh, other days I have other stuff like show production meetings, which are two hours long, where me and my producer will discuss the upcoming shows, review the incoming applications for people who want to be on the show look at other shows and see what guests they've had and who we might want to get. We look at our, our entire lists of guests we're thinking of having. We talk about those people 
And there's a lot of little things that, that happen. And I try to stack all of those little meetings and little calls on that are regular on one day. So Monday, get those things done so that the rest of the week I can do creative stuff instead of just like, oh, I've got to talk to the CPA. Oh, I got to make sure these videos are uploaded and check the, make sure these other people who I'm managing did their stuff. You know, I got to make sure that you got to look at other people's work and make sure that they're doing it. But there's a, I have to schedule it so that I don't micromanage everybody, right? You don't want to check someone's work 10 times a week. You want to check their work once a week, ideally. And so there's a lot of that stuff. And I, between that, I've got smaller appointments, like making sure that all of my networking connections, and by that, I just mean friends, colleagues, whatever, are people that I've spoken to recently. And I use apps and services for that too. So I like to make damn sure that I'm engaging with people and practicing what we preach here at the Art of Charm and not just sitting up here writing books about networking and then never doing it or something like that. And so there's a lot of little things that go into my particular business, my particular job inside this business, I should say. But a lot of it is scheduled and regular, which is great because that makes it predictable, which means that if there's any sort of emergency or anything like that, which there never is, I can plan to be flexible for that because I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants all day, every day. I love it. Well, there is so much in there that we could unpack, but I want to take it all the way back to the very beginning when you were talking about email, because I am actually interested in your email triage procedure. Um, I do the exact same thing. I check my email first thing in the morning as well. And because we have a good procedure in place, it is very little that I have to do myself. Um, So I'd love to hear what your procedure is, because I'm sure everyone is wanting me to ask that right now. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I've got I use Spark, which is both on Mac and on the phone, and it's much better than, excuse me, it's much better than Gmail. It runs on the back of Gmail. It's just an email client, so it's it's better than the Gmail app, and it has a lot of really cool functions. And they're generally email apps are largely the same. This one happens to be really fast, and you can use you can slide to do most actions. And so I have anything that comes in that is spam. Obviously, I immediately mark it as spam because it's really tempting to archive something if you don't because you oh like I can slide in Gmail and archive it, or I can click on this and then click on that and then remote, report it as spam. It's better just to do that because I've I've read studies where you're getting the same spam. You're getting hundreds of this from the same places. So if you can just block it first thing, then do that. So I make sure I go through all that. Any sort of notification shows up in a different tab. And usually those are things I can batch super, super fast. And then I will look at my regular inbox also in a separate tab uh, on Spark where uh, those messages that come in, it can show me a preview. And I know pretty much from looking at that preview without even opening the message, whether or not this is something I need to address now or I can do it later. And if if later, is it just whenever or is it, uh, it should probably be done at some point this week? So if it's something I have to do now, I'll do it now, which usually involves delegation. Like, oh, shoot, this customer replied to or sent a message to me instead of to the billing department. Let me send them over there. Or this person wants to buy advertising on the show. Let me send them to my producer. I don't know why they emailed me directly and forgot to copy Jason. So I'll send those on the ones that can be handled anytime where it's like, Hey, Jordan, I love the show. Just wanted to say hello. I will always reply to those, but that's something I can do in a month, you know, easily or next month even. And so I'll just mark it as red 
by doing nothing in Spark, and it will go into my general inbox. And then, yeah, some someday in a month or six weeks, I'll be sitting at a cafe for four hours drinking good tea and listening to music, and I'll just plow through 300 emails. And the other tab, the ones that I star or pin, those are the ones I'd usually address every week where it's like, hey, we need to set up a call to do this, or hey, you know, we have to figure out when we're going to schedule this thing. And uh, usually scheduling can be done by my assistant, of course, but if it's a friend of mine, I, you, you never want to push your friends over that way. So I'll, I'll pin that. They know my response time will be reasonable. And then I'll go through every week uh, for an hour and go through all of the pinned and start emails. And that way, every morning, everything gets triaged. So I don't have a bunch of unread, gee, is this really important or is it nothing? I always know right away what it is. And then when I'm going through my email on Friday, or whatever day that I have, I can go through the important ones first knowing, okay, I've only got an hour. So I can go through all of the important ones. And then I know that even though there's a ton of emails still in my inbox, it's already read and it's not urgent. So I don't go, uh, I only did 50 and I have 350. I can't even have fun this weekend. You know, I don't, I don't have that problem because the decisions have already been made. They've already been triaged. They're already in the appropriate place and I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I think that's important, especially for people who run businesses, because there's, if you're the person that goes into your inbox and looks at everything and then goes, Mark is unread, Mark is unread, Mark is unread, you're going to freak yourself out because every time you open your inbox, you've got 3,085 unread emails, but you've kind of already read them, and but you don't really know what's in any of them because you haven't made any decisions. You're just delaying the decision, but you yet you've spent the time to look at it already, which is just wasted now because you didn't do anything with it. So every time you look at an email, you have to make a decision about that email as to its level of importance. Otherwise, don't look at the email at all because it's a waste of time because you're going to have to look at it again and then make a decision. So just look at it and make the decision right away. If you don't have time to make that decision, then don't look at your email because you don't have time. So you did mention networking as part of uh, the work that you do on a weekly basis or even the fun that you do on a weekly basis um, in your role at the company and just um, kind of, you know, who you are. And you do have a class uh, coming up on Creative Live about the art of networking. So I'm I'm an introvert. I think of myself as a fairly awkward person, uh, even if other people wouldn't think of me of that way. And, you know, networking can feel really weird to me, but I've really learned how crucial it is uh, to, you know, to the success of, of any business. Networking is incredibly important. Can you tell me about how you networked uh, into the relationships that really helped you get a leg up in the early days of the Art of Charm? Hmm. When I look at relationships that have been crucial for Art of Charm, it's always kind of a surprise because a lot, I think a lot of people think, all right, you know, I got to make friends with these important people or these famous people. And these are the people that are going to get me ahead. I've, I've seen tons of people. I used to live in Los Angeles. So I've seen tons of people who seem to think that way. Oh, I'm going to hang out with this famous person or this well-known person or this well-connected person. That's not really in my experience, who ends up getting you ahead. It makes for great cocktail party stories about the cool person you hung out with, and I hear that a lot in Hollywood. But I rarely find that that person delivers opportunities or those people deliver opportunities. Usually it's some sort of serendipitous relationship that ends up being really good for your business. For example, it, it, we were so excited when we went into satellite radio and we thought we're going to meet these hosts. And then if they like us, we can become regulars on their show. It's going to be so great. It's going to be so fun. And then we went to the, to do that show. And what ended up happening was 
they got really annoyed with us because they 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 told us that there's no way we could help their producer because he was such a dork and there was nothing that could be done with him. We took him through our class and he immediately started to show all this amazing promise and he went and was more confident. He gave presentations. So that's what ended up getting the attention of the station manager and the his boss the second time around. Aside from our performance on the show, they noticed that what we were teaching actually worked. And that ended up really pissing off these original hosts that we thought were going to be such a good connection because we made them look bad. They had him for five years. We had him for five days and we, we were able to do a lot more. So they were really annoyed with us, but what they actually tried to make us look really bad. So what ended up happening was the station manager who'd heard about it and all of the executives who'd noticed that this producer was totally different. They decided to set us up as the sort of anti what's, what is it? The foil Mm -hmm. to this particularly popular show on Sirius XM satellite radio. So they had, they had essentially branded us as like, this nerdy enemy that they had that was highly effective and that was coming up on their heels and the management loved this, but we never, we never sought the connection with the management there. We just thought, Oh, we're going to become regulars on this show and it's going to help our business. And so it was kind of a funny roundabout way. And, And you can't see the opportunities on the horizon. And I think that's the real takeaway here is most people, when they're networking, they're looking for a specific target. They're like, I need to meet this person because this is the expected outcome from knowing that person. And it's never really like that. It's very rarely like that. You usually can't see the opportunities that you end up getting because they're over the horizon. The way that you get them is by helping other people without expecting anything in return, because those are the same types of people that will then later on reciprocate. Maybe one in a hundred or one in 10 will do so, but you can't predict which ones those are. So it makes a lot less sense to have this really targeted networking approach. You can you can curate and you can filter people. Don't get me wrong. You should go to high level events with great people and not just go meet everyone everywhere for any reason, but you can't predict who's going to deliver what opportunity. And the the way that I would ex- sort of explain this and or, uh, give you this little story here that really illustrates this concept. When I moved to LA, I didn't have dental insurance. and I didn't have a car. I moved there from New York. So it, basically I, I I didn't have any kind of vehicle at that point. I didn't drive across country and I didn't have a car in New York City. So I I had a toothache, though, and that was an awful feeling if you've ever had a toothache. The pain is like right in in your brain. And I kept calling Dennis and I was like, I need to come in tomorrow. I need to come in tomorrow. They're like, oh, no, I don't accept your insurance or no insurance. And I don't accept new patients. Uh, You should go to the ER. And I thought they're just going to rip my tooth out with pliers or something (laughs) if I go to the ER. I'm not doing that. And I posted on Facebook in desperation that I needed a dentist and that hopefully it was within walking distance because this is before Uber existed, just to put it in context here. And this guy I don't know replied and said, you know, actually my aunt is a dentist nearby. I'll call her. And she ended up going to the office early with her assistant. They took care of the root canal for me the next day because she's like, oh, you're friends with my nephew. It's fine. And I didn't know who this person was. It was just a random person on Facebook that had seen my public update and had all, you know, other people clicking like on it or being like, oh, so sorry, you know, that kind of thing. And I, after I got my tooth taken care of, I messaged him and said, man, this is, this is huge. You have no idea. And he's like, yeah, no problem. You know, I just, I, I felt bad for you. I know it has, it's like to have a toothache and, and all that. And then he said, by the way, I'm a graphic designer and here's my portfolio. And I thought, well, I can't really help you. I don't need graphic design, but I'll, I'll keep my ear to the ground for you. And a few days later, another entrepreneur friend of mine said, 
hey, look, I need a web designer because mine just flaked. Do you know anyone? You guys have a great website. Well, we do all of our stuff in-house, so I, I couldn't really help. But I said, look, I have a graphics guy. I don't know what else he can do, but here's his portfolio. He had sent me this thing. I I don't know if he's reliable, nothing, but he, he seems like a really nice person, if nothing else. He said, that's fine. So he reached out, and this guy ended up getting a full-time gig with my friend's company doing all of the web and graphic design. Now, if he had sent that portfolio to every single person that he had ever met in his entire life, which would be impossible, <laughs> he still would not have gotten that job because we still have not met. And had I asked every single person that I knew and had ever met in my entire life for a referral to that dentist or a dentist, I still might have come up dry. Uh, and yet this person was able to help me that way. But he could never have known that I was going to get him a job because for, for helping me find the dentist. And I never could have known that I was going to uh, be able to find a dentist from this random person online. So basically he helped me with the expectation of nothing in return. And he ended up even an, an opportunity that I could not have foreseen because I didn't even know it was going to come in the future, the ability to hand over his portfolio and get him a really uh, high paying job. Bear in mind, he was a bartender or a barista, I forget now, in LA at the time. He wasn't even working in graphic design. He wanted to get a job in that. He was just an amateur that had talent and was working hard. So he ended up getting his dream job and able to quit another job that was a dead end career for him. And I was able to get my tooth fixed. Neither of those things would have made sense. If we had met that morning, we would not have said, hey man, look, if you can get me a dentist, I'll get you a job. <laughs> <laughs> right. So those opportunities are over the horizon. You can't see them. And so the only way to maximize your return on your networking is to help everyone that you can without actually expecting anything in return. Because if you're looking for the return, you won't find most of the opportunity and you end up doing something which is one of the key networking mistakes, which is called keeping score. But I'll pause here for a breath just in case you want to interject. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I do think that so many people think it's just networking is about kind of climbing that social ladder and just going after bigger and bigger fishes. And it so rarely pans out the way we think it's going to. Uh, and I, I completely agree that it's those kind of serendipitous connections that end up uh, allowing you to make big leaps forward. But then that makes me think like, well, does that mean we need to be on Facebook or on Twitter, just constantly looking for the opportunity to uh, contribute something to help people out? How do you kind of, you know, you mentioned curating these opportunities or curating connections. How are you managing that kind of network, those kind of contributions to people you may not know yet without it beginning to get overwhelming in terms yeah. of this need that you have for networking? Great question. So this happens in a lot of ways, and, and I'll try to be super organized with it, but no promises. <laughs> um, the way that I, so I do a couple different types of networking. One, I will go to high-end events, and my recommendation is always go to the, go to the one you, you can afford, uh, and that is not the greatest recommendation. I should probably figure out a better way to phrase it. But frankly, if you can go to TED, the TED conference, go to the TED conference. If you can go to some of these smaller, more curated events that are for high-end marketing executives or something like that, then go to that. Even if you think, oh, well, I'm not a CMO of a big company yet. If you can get there, go because they'll be, well, they'll be pretty surprised to see you there and it might help your career. But it's always very, it's beneficial to do that because the free events usually are full of people who 
don't really value networking that much. They're usually looking for clients or something like that. I used to go to all of these free events, right? These meetups and professional networking in LA. And I stopped going after a handful because what I realized was 99% of the people there were like, hey, I'm a financial manager. Uh, let me know if you need to invest your money and get great returns. And I was just thinking, what? This is so weird. Why am I sitting in a YMCA conference room or you know, classroom talking with eating stale cookies and talking with people in ill-fitting suits who are trying to get me, you know, whenever you need your next car, give me a call. I'm practically giving them away down here. I'm like, ugh, ugh, you know, get away. And the reason is because those are free events. And so the, they're attracting a certain caliber of person. The, the people who weren't doing that were all college students looking for jobs, right? That's who goes to those events. If you go to higher level events that cost money, that's one way of curation because somebody's going to invest $7,000 in a weekend event is probably not going to be there looking for a way to, uh, to, to sell a car because you're gonna have to sell a lot of cars at that event to, to make your the price of entry come back. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of higher caliber people at those types of events too. And a lot of times events that are at that price point, for example, or at any price point, they have some sort of application process as well. It's not just buy a ticket and come. Some conferences are like that, but a lot of them you have to apply. And that's important. Ted, you have to apply. Other events like that, you have to apply. And they, they purposely do that because they don't want somebody with a bad reputation or no reputation to come to that event and spoil the atmosphere for everybody else who's looking for curation as well. So that's one way of doing it. Look for those uh, those types of events. The other thing is, I know what you're asking. You're, you're saying, how do you do this and make it scalable? Because otherwise, you're just sitting on Facebook, what, looking at your newsfeed for who you can help? It doesn't make any sense. And I understand that. Well, there's a distinction here that's really important that, and it's another common networking mistake that so many people make, which is they look at who can I help directly in a way that is within my capacity as a professional. And what that means is if I'm a graphic designer, to beat that dead horse, if I'm a graphic designer, I will – uh, typically, if I'm making this mistake, I will look at somebody and go, hmm, who needs graphic design work? This person, no. This person, no. This person, yes. Okay, now I'm going to spend five hours helping them, doing a mock-up. Okay, this person, yes. All right, now I'm going to spend three hours critiquing their thing for free because blah, blah, blah. That's not how you do it. The way that I help most people is the same way that this graphic designer actually helped me initially, which is connecting them to other people in your network. That's the main way that you can help others and it's fully scalable. So if you say, Jordan, I really need somebody who can help with my audio editing because it's such a pain and I find myself spending hours and hours doing that, I don't take your audio and edit it for you and show you how to do it and da -da -da. no, I find you a producer and I make an email introduction to that person. So now I've helped that producer because now they have a client and I've helped you because I helped you find a quality producer who knows what they're doing. That's very scalable. That might take me four minutes to create that email and send it to both of you and create that introduction. That's really important because that means I can quote unquote help or connect dozens and dozens of people every single week without even changing what I, my behavior that much at all. I'm, maybe I'm doing it on my way to lunch. Right. I'm walking. I'm in an elevator making these introductions. I'm not spending hours of my day figuring out how I'm going to help somebody myself. It's about connecting others inside the web that already exists, not creating clients and work for yourself. 
Ugh, I'm so glad you brought up that distinction uh, because not only then are you helping people out just by connecting them, but you're actually increasing the size of your network every time you make a connection like that as well, which is a- another element of it of it scaling. Um, because yeah, I think a lot of people think about networking in terms of well, that's you know that's free work or working for free and they don't want to do that. They shouldn't be doing that. So yeah, this is, this is such a great example. Now you are a professional, obviously when it comes to networking, but I'm curious if you've ever had, uh, if you've ever experienced like a major faux pas when it comes to networking on, on, not on your behalf, but like, have you actually made a major faux pas when it comes to networking for your business? I was, that's how I was going to answer it. I was thinking, of course I've come across major faux pas. I make them all the time. Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of one that's actually entertaining other than well actually here yes I have made plenty of faux pas in the past and I've come up with a, a couple of lessons so these might sound minor but there are ways in which you can make yourself look like an amateur if you're not careful so classic faux pas I don't have a great story about an individual time I've done this but I can I can illustrate it with the lesson here I've con- constantly when you're introducing people to each other you're inevitably going to come across people who have already made it in the same circles or already connected. And it's pretty embarrassing if it's like, Hey Tara, let me introduce you to my friend, Chase Jarvis. And you're like, yeah, I work together. We work together. So that's thanks anyway. But if I've already sent the email to both you and him, you both have to kind of be like, do I just archive this or do I reply? We know each other. And then smiley face like, ah, what a, why did he do that? Why wouldn't he have checked with us? So the answer to that, the way you avoid that is you do what I call the double opt-in introduction. And I don't remember where I got this or if this is something that one of my business partners made up, but essentially I will reach out to you and say, Hey, do you know this guy, Chase? He's a photographer and he runs this company creative live and he's a smart guy. And you say, actually I do, or I don't. And I do the same thing. I say the same thing to Chase. And then I get replies from both of you that say, hey, we don't know each other. And yes, I'm willing to be introduced or we already know each other. And then the the sort of the threat or the thread ends there because the other faux pas is introducing somebody to another person because you only asked one party if they knew each other already and they say, no, we don't. And then, so I go, great. So I make that introduction and then I get the, an email from the, from the other guy or other gal. And she goes, Oh, I've been freaking avoiding this person for like three years. They email me all the time. I'm always just archiving it. I don't even want them to know that I'm getting their email because they're so irritating. They email my staff every day. Oh, they're so I just hate this person. Now you are associated with them, right? So that's bad. And now they have to go, hey, Jordan, thanks for the email. Hi, uh, John. Yeah, I'm really busy these days. So I'm so sorry. I don't have time to do this project with you. Now they have to reply. I've forced their hand because I've just confirmed their email. I've given it to this person they don't like and they can't afford to make, they don't want to make me look bad by not responding. So they have to reply and I've put them in a very awkward position, which at some point you might even get an email back. And I've had emails from people that are like, I just, I don't want these types of introductions. And this is years ago. And I think most people are pretty reasonable, but there are, there are some people that will get actually annoyed if you introduce them to somebody 
that they feel like they don't want to talk to. And I understand that. I, I prefer the double opt-in as well. I get a lot of unsolicited introductions. Hey, my friend is self-publishing a new ebook about this topic you don't cover on your show. Have at it, guys. And I go, uh, yeah, we don't cover this, but thanks for the intro. Sorry, John. Uh, don't want you to waste your time. We're not looking for guests right now. And, and that's really – that's annoying for me to have to do that. It's annoying for me to have to do that. And the other person's thinking, well, why did you just make that introduction so I could get shot down? I just sent this per I just mailed him a copy of my book. You know, what what the hell? So always ask both parties, not only do they know each other, but are they willing to be introduced? Because a lot of times the answer will be no or not right now, or we already know each other, or I hate this person and here's why. <laughs> you know, and you want to know all of those things. So get the double opt-in first. Don't just make the introduction thinking you're doing a good thing because sometimes you're making more work for somebody and you don't even know it. You don't think about it. Yes, I have absolutely made that mistake myself. And it was uh, it's it still plagues me to this day um, or not the, the not the mistake itself, but thinking about it. The feeling, Ugh, yeah. yeah, the feeling. Oh, it's so bad. So you have just saved a lot of people, a lot of heartache. So thank you for that. Um, I'm as we start to wrap up here, I'm curious what's next for you and for the art of charm. What are you working on right now? So we're always trying to grow the show. Of course, we're at 3.4 million downloads a month, which is really cool. I love being able to do the show and talk to these interesting people. So that's my sort of singular-ish focus. Of course, we're doing our creative live course on networking. That's going to be out in July, late July. So we're excited about that because if you found this episode useful, We've got hours and hours of stuff like this to make people more effective. So we're working hard on that to make it really presentable and and make it fun because it's hard to watch something for five or eight hours, you know, so we're trying to make it entertaining and fun and interesting and make sure that we get people uh, networking and getting great results from it and making sure that it's easy and fun for them too. Fantastic. Well, I'm really looking forward to the class. I know you guys are going to be amazing uh, on the Creative Live platform. So Jordan Harbinger, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a really enlightening conversation. Thank you, Tara. You can listen to The Jordan Harbinger Show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Find out more about Jordan Harbinger at jordanharbinger.com or learn more about his new company, Advanced Human Dynamics, at advancedhumandynamics.com. This interview was originally produced by Michael Karsh and engineered by Daniel Peterson. This episode was produced and edited by Marty Seafelt. Our theme music is by The Shrugs. Find over 160 interviews with small business owners who share the nitty gritty on what's really working at whatworkspodcast.com.